You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. Uh, this is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Charlene Namath, who is a professor in the Graduate School and Department of Psychology at UC Berkeley, also the author of The Power of Dissent in Life and Business. Also, I think this is the UK edition. It's also called No, The Power of Disagreement in a World That Wants to Get Along. And, and I think you could have easily written this book with a title that says something like, you know, how consensus makes you stupid, right? Or how consensus kind of degrades the quality of decision-making. Now, look, in, in the world of decision-making, I think most of the people who study it focus on in individual decision-making, and then they focus on the biases and the heuristics to kind of get in the way of high-quality individual decision-making. And then and there's another strand, which is probably not as well-researched, which is on kind of social decision-making or collective decision-making. And there's lots of writing about groupthink and, and, and so forth. And I think this is sort of in that line of inquiry. And you've done a lot of experiments that evaluate how individual thinking is affected by the diversity of thinking that it encounters in various social and collective settings of decision-making. You've done a lot of work on juries in particular. I think that's sort of your, your core research, but that's the field work that you've done. But then kind of in the lab, you've, you've focused on a whole wide range of, of decision-making. So I want to start with the question, what is the logic of kind of going along with the crowd, right? So when you go back and you look at the ASH experiments and all the other experiments in this kind of line. You know, we talk about how there are these negative consequences associated with conformity, but conformity must, there must be a reason for this, right? There must be a reason why people kind of allow the consensus to influence their, their thinking. So, so first of all, you know, what context does it make sense for individuals to allow the consensus to influence them? And, and under what circumstances should perhaps they resist it? Okay. I almost don't know where to start because actually in that prelude, you brought up about three or four things that I found myself wanting to make a distinction. So if my memory serves me, I'll try to, you got it, maybe you can help recreate it. I think just for starts, I think if my work is almost in that interface between the social and the individual decision-making, because fundamentally we're social animals. And you can study all you want about how people process and think as individuals, but the reality of it is that we bring with us, even, even the area of heuristics and bias, it isn't as though you kind of decide to do it. To some extent, is that it's part of your social experience as well, why you do it. So number one, I tend not to have that kind of a, of a distinction. And I think psychology for way too long has looked at the individual and only secondarily realizes like maybe a social influence on that individual phenomenon. But there's an interface between those. That's just kind of a, a starting point because in some ways... Just question on that. Is that because it's easier to study in the lab? Like, you know, you just put somebody in a cubicle and present them with information and then ask them to make decisions? Is, is that just because... I can guarantee you that it is way easier to do individual research than it is to try to do group. Because with group, you've got so many things going on. I mean, who's talking to who and who says what when? 
And you can't track things quite as easily. I, I mean, the truth of the matter is you have to be way more creative to set up a group setting and to be able to, to really document it carefully. And so a lot of times, even in my research, and we can go, go back to the basic issues, which more people are interested in than the methodology probably, but you do the experiments in order to get cause and effect and to kind of nail down the logical hypothesis testing. But it only kind of matters if you can put it back into the group setting. And what you understand, you can track in a reasonable way that then the data becomes consistent. One by itself doesn't give you the full answer. So we've really done that, and that's hard work. Believe me, it's a lot easier to stick with the same paradigm, just redo things, add a variable, whatever. But that doesn't give you either the ecological validity, because you're never going to cover every variable. What you have to do is to document the theory. And then to be able to put the theory onto a much more macro setting and find it still is predictive. So, I mean, that's a methodological issue. But I think back to your main one, which really has to do with, I mean, it's even the phrasing of when should we pay attention? I, I think what people often don't realize, number one, is that many of these processes are not really under voluntary control, under intellectual control. We have this illusion that somehow... You know, we're either open-minded or close-minded, and we think and that we'll be aware of a bias and we'll do something about it. Tell you, if we've learned anything, if there's any humility among academics, it should be a recognition. We know very, very little. And the fact is, is that even when it comes to the heuristics, you know, you have a cottage industry now of people who think they can train you to not be biased. As though, I'm a believer in education, don't get me wrong, I think there's insight but I don't think it comes automatically that if you get an insight about something you're doing that's, uh, say, suboptimal, that you can change that just because of the education. All of these attempts to educate people about, say, bias and all that doesn't lead to their being less biased half the time. Is that if you take them out of that setting, you look at them a week later, there's bias to say everywhere. And part of it, I mean, even the guys who did the original research, like Danny Kahneman, for example, who I do know, he was an immediate colleague of mine, is that he'd be the first to say, He's subject to the same biases. Doesn't change the human nature of it just because you're, you recognize it. Doesn't mean that education doesn't have some insight. But I think it's worth remembering that a lot of reasons why you follow consensus or a majority, for example, or how you treat a minority. But it isn't, there are good reasons for it, but they're not reasons that you kind of decide to do quite often. So, for example, if we go back to when you mentioned the ASH studies or things like the power of consensus, the power of the majority, in fact. So if, if, if the majority thinks something and you listen to them, you ask yourself, why do decades of research, and I mean decades and decades in many, many different countries, show over and over again, that if you get as few as three people all agreeing, for example, that blue is green or that something is there that isn't, you'll find a fully a third of the people will follow that direction. And the bottom line of it is you do this for really two reasons. One of them, we assume the truth lies in numbers. And so there's that kind of a notion of, well, if they all agree that it's X, it must be X, namely the fault lies in me being in the minority. That's an assumption and one that obviously I, I want to break and I will break it today <laughs> again. Okay, the second reason is is that they don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. They fear rejection and ridicule coming from being in the minority position because they're very unsure of the certainty of it given the assumption that truth lies in numbers. Those things collaborate, and you can separate them out when you do, do experiments, and you can amplify 
the fear of rejection, which is relevant when we talk about organizations, for example, or lessen it. I mean, there's mechanisms in which you can deal with those fundamental reasons for buying into a majority rule, or not a majority rule, a majority position. And you can either decrease it or increase it. There's ways of doing that, but you're dealing with the fundamental reality of why they do it in the first place. And it becomes very relevant because things like fear of ridicule is one reason why, like in companies, people don't stand up and speak about a problem, even when it's evident, and even when the company would clearly profit from it, is that the risk is there, the ridicule, they fear. And I'm here to tell you that there's no white knight coming in to tell you you needn't fear it. You should fear it because the fact is, is that you can show all the courage and be correct, and you can and will be still ridiculed and many times assumed to be incorrect. So there's a price to pay for this. Now, that's at one level of why you do this, if you follow a majority rule. The second thing, though, that you really are raising, which is the heart of the message of the book, really, in getting into my own individual research, and that's that it isn't that the majority is correct. It's that it, they can be correct. So I'm not here to say that consensus is bad or following a majority opinion is bad. It may or may not be bad. The question is whether or not you are adopting their position by utilizing what they have to say and engaging in your own critical thinking. Now, that's a mouthful, but that's critical because where my research kind of got a lot of attention, really, was that I moved from that notion of persuasion to influence really at a deeper level, which is simulation of thought. Now, let me unpack that for a second. Is it rather than just paying attention to when and why do I move to a majority position and was that correct or not? Is that I moved more in that whole line of research that we did is to show that what that majority opinion does, it isn't whether it's right or wrong. You can't always assess that ahead of time. Okay. And many times you will move regardless of the correctness of it because of these, of the power of this, assuming you're wrong and that you want to belong, essentially. Okay. What we sometimes don't really, in fact, not sometimes, almost always don't realize is that exposure to those positions changes the way we think about the issue. That's a different emphasis than buying or not buying their position. So what our research shows, basically, in terms of the consensus, back to your main point, namely, is it good or bad is what you're really saying of consensus. And there are people who would have you believe that you should follow majority viewpoint because generally in the diversity of their opinions is that their average on balance be correct. Now, that's true in very, very limited circumstances. If we're talking about how many beans are in a jar and you have 10 people and they're all kind of agreeing that there is X number, you know, it's probably smart to, to adopt that. But if you start dealing with anything more complicated than that, the majority may be right and it may be wrong. And it partly is that they're more likely to be correct, at least if they're independent judgments. But so often when you hear a majority opinion, they've influenced each other. So it's like an N of one rather than an N of 10. So, I mean, some of those get into the nuances of when you should pay attention. But I think more critically, fundamentally my belief, and certainly all the work we've done for a million years, is that what's really important is whether or not those interactions, that listening to differing viewpoints, changes the way you think, the way you make decisions. Because, and that was the hard part, was to realize that when you ask yourself, what makes for good decisions? 
It isn't the end product. That's always after the fact, whether it was a good idea or a bad idea. And half the time that was multiply determined, not just by that you made a good decision. It was the right time, right place, stock market was up, for whatever reason. What is central is that good decision-making comes from thinking in ways that by and large lead to good decisions. And in fact, you know what? That was hard to find in the literature is any set of criteria. But where I did find a set of criteria was what old work of Irving Janus on group think, who recognized that what you want to do is to access information on all sides of the issue. You want to consider various ways of integrating that information, various ways. So the divergent thinking is important. You want to be able to consider the cons as well as the pros of your preferred position. Namely, what I'm illustrating are the elements of critical thinking that most people don't do. They reach, as long as it seems like, well, that seems we're basically right, let's go with it. Or the majority thinks so, so there's reasons for it. Boom, let's go with it. All of those things that pressure premature decision-making and premature consensus. Where what we do know is that you have to get people to be divergent in their thinking. Because it's not an inclination, it's to do extra work after you think it's right. What's, in, I think, the most important message of our work and in, in the book is that when you hear opposing views that come from a majority, this consensus thing we're talking about, it isn't just whether or not you follow it, which is persuasion. It's how are you thinking as a result. And what we find is that when it's consensus you're listening to, the mind closes. And by that, I mean study after study after study. Now we're down to the experimental uh, tracking of it, is that people access only information that corroborates the majority position. It's like self-brainwashing. It's like they want to adopt the position of the majority, partly because they think it's probably correct and partly because it's safer, easier, and more comfortable to join the majority position. So there'd be a lot of motivations for it. But what you do is that given all the possible information and we track what they choose to read, is that they read what corroborates that majority position. They sort of talk themselves into it, if you will. In other studies, they will use the strategy of the majority in problem solving without even realizing they use that, overuse that strategy, and they don't use other strategies they might do on their own. Okay, I mean, you can track all the elements of it, but whether it's the information you read, whether it's the options that you consider, whether it's not, whether or not you consider the downside of the positions as well as the upside, you don't, you, can, you bolster the majority position. So if you track the thought processes even, they tend to justify and corroborate the majority position. So the mind is working differently. By contrast, in the salvation, for, for me, which is what I, the drumbeat, is the value of dissent. And the beauty of this, what I love more than anything, is in all the studies, it doesn't matter if the dissent is right or wrong. What's important is, is that it's a dissenting viewpoint, authentically, and we can get into what authentic means, delivered with conviction. That changes the nature of thought too, but it changes it in a way that opens the mind. So when you have a dissenting viewpoint, you can think the guy's crazy, and you will. And if you ask him their, your judgment of him, your perceptions, he'll say he's a lunatic, he doesn't know what he's talking about, I don't like him, you know, whatever. And that comes with, with the territory. But, but if you look at what's the effect on you, even though you don't realize it and won't appreciate it totally, is that you start to read more widely on different, from different points of view. You look at the cons as well as the pros of positions. 
you, you use multiple strategies, not just the one they suggested, but it opens you up to ones you wouldn't have used. You detect solutions you wouldn't have seen otherwise. I mean, I could go rat-a-tat-tat down, which people are welcome to if they want to read the specifics in the book. But the bottom line of it is, is that it isn't a question of whether they're right or wrong and trying to calibrate ahead of time whether you should follow them or not. What it is is a recognition that fundamentally it has to be your critical thinking, and it is heavily influenced by consensus or by dissent, where consensus will close your mind, and you need to understand that, and dissent will actually open it so you become a better decision maker. Once you do that, you see you're in a better position to assess whether or not you want to follow them, stick where you were, or move to a third position, perhaps more enlightened, kind of a John Stuart Mill notion of democracy, if, if you will. The vibrancy of that kind of engagement with disagreement. Anyway, that's my speech. I mean, there's a couple different things going on here, right? So a lot of people talk about the importance of encountering opinions that are different from your own, as opposed to the same as your own. But you're going one step deeper, which is to say that it is the kind of composition of those other voices that also matters. So in other words, if, if I think it's green, okay, and everyone else thinks it's, it's blue, okay, well, that's, that means I'm encountering a different opinion. But I think what you're saying is that if I were to encounter a group where everyone thought it was blue, but there was one person that thought it was green, that's going to be fundamentally different than if it was kind of 100% blue, right? And so, so, you know, some kind of, if you see that there's a, a diversity of opinions in the other that's more likely to stimulate some kind of critical thinking than if you saw unanimity, regardless of whether that unanimity was in agreement or disagreement with your prior, your initial position. Is that, is that correct? I mean, because one thing is about encountering, if, I'm, if I think it's blue and everybody else thinks it's blue, okay, that's game over. I'm not going to, I'm going to stop thinking. If I think it's blue and everybody else thinks it's green, okay, you know, you might think, okay, well, Let's dig in and figure out why they think it's green. But you're saying even in that scenario, the critical thinking is, is likely to get shut down far more than if I encounter a group where there's some blues and some greens. And you're exactly right, Greg, in general. The one thing, distinction, though, that I think is really important is that it isn't composition. And that will get back to, I know, an interest that you have in the notion of diversity as opposed to dissent. Okay, and I, that's worth talking about. But in, in this context... It isn't a matter that there's a different position that exists. What matters, and we've done studies on this as well, is that it's very important that it be maintained over some period of time and be expressed with a confidence and, we'll get back to, in authenticity. And that will get us into the contrivances like of devil's advocate, which don't work as well. Okay. So what I'm getting at is that the conviction and authenticity of a person willing to maintain a position, knowing full well the risks associated with it, that's where the power of stimulating your thought is. Hearing a one shot of some guy saying, well, I think it's green, you can ignore that, and you will. Not when he persists, and not when it is clearly authentic and he's willing to stand up. That's where the power of it is, because it requires an engagement. Otherwise, it's too much it's almost like I could put it on a piece of paper that some people think this as opposed to that or opposed to that. I think we as, as academics, frankly, overestimate that all we need is the information and that we'll be great decision makers. 
I know that's not true. I, I could say, I, I believe that's not true. I know that's not true. And that, you see, it's even voicing it that way that has more impact, by the way. And I'm not doing that as a strategy, but, but it comes out of conviction. And people know the difference. But it isn't a matter of laying down that there are alternatives or that some people consider it. Half the time you know that anyway. And even if they happen to be in your own group, so what? What does matter is if you're engaged in that disagreement. And that's uncomfortable. But that's where the payoff is. So it's not just persistence. It's also kind of rigidity to some degree, right? Because if, they, if they're like, well, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I kind of think it's green. And they, and they just kind of say, well, I kind of think it's green. Or they have to say, no, like, is it about certainty or is it about consistency that provokes this, right? Because if someone kind of hedges and says, well, you know, then, then that might allow you to dismiss their opinion. That's a good point. And that's, in fact, true. We actually even have done specific studies where, for example, you, you can't compromise. No, but don't confuse not compromising with rigidity. There's a difference, okay? It's one thing to say, look, I think it's green. That's my belief. I see green, and I believe that. And if I then say, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's blue-green then, you, you wipe out your influence. I can guarantee you that. As soon as you move, it's like you're dismissed because you don't have anything that you really believe. And again, that's a phrasing I come back to because that's the engine. And so you, you can kind of dismiss this, so you can't compromise. On the other hand, being consistent doesn't mean being rigid. And I think that there's a, sometimes phrasing. I, one of my favorite people is Carl Weick, an organizational behavior who you probably know, who, who often has this notion of, of kind of loose coupling in a way, where in many ways you see is that even if you hold something that, that you believe with conviction, there's a level at which you also want to be the kind of a person who realizes that nothing is perfect or 100%. Maybe you'll be proven wrong. Maybe there are nuances to it you haven't considered. So it's a loose holding of it, if you will. But that doesn't belie the fact that this is what I believe, though. And this is what I know to be true. Now, how you convey this is subtle. Okay, you're not going to track all of it. But I think one of the things worth remembering is to listen to the other. Because when you listen and consider their position, you are showing a flexibility even though you don't change your mind. But the interaction and the power of what you have to say is altered. So, I mean, what I'm getting at is you can go down a lot of paths on this in terms of how to make this work, depending on different groups and different things that you want to achieve. But I think the bottom line of it is, is that the dissent stimulates this open-mindedness when it is held with conviction and some confidence that it's true, but that's not rigidity. We were able, for example, in one study, one of the really early ones, in which they could actually change their position because an element of the stimulus had changed, and there was a patterning to the change in their voice. So it's sort of like when something's altered, I can move from here to here, but I don't just do it willy-nilly because I don't know what I believe. And you can still maintain that perception of consistency that you know and still be open to some new information, and you can alter it then. You then have the best of both worlds in the sense that you have the consistency and you have the authenticity, but you also have the flexibility. 
is it mere exposure to other conclusions or is it important that you are exposed to other kind of arguments, right? So in the book, you refer to 12 Angry Men, which is, you know, I still think a wonderful movie and, and, and almost like a, a case study of persuasion, even though it's fictional. But there, Peter Fonda has all sorts of arguments that, that he's making. It's Can I correct like, you, Greg? Guy's not. It's Henry. It's a, Henry Fonda, yeah, right? Yeah, I know you were. Got to go back. Got to go back one generation. He was on right? a Henry motorcycle. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Henry Fonda, I, of course, Golden Pond, right? Um, but he's not just saying not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Green, green, green. He's actually articulating various various arguments. So a lot of us in social media will encounter people with different opinions. And they're just, they're just shouting their opinions, right? Abortion's wrong. Abortion's right. Abortion's right. Abortion's wrong. Like, is, is it, is it enough to simply encounter people that have different opinions or do, do you have to be exposed to the, the arguments that they're presenting? It depends on what you want to affect. Is that if, if you want to pummel them and you've got all the numbers, give them the bottom line and they'll move. But that's not what we're after, which is that you stimulate good thinking on their part. Okay. For that. Yeah, and, and I think you're right to to raise the twelve angry men, which I, I love. I've been teaching that forever. I, I think I've almost adopted it for many many years because because I look at it not in terms of persuasion, I look at it in terms of I listen to how the discussion changed. I listen to how somebody all of a sudden who thought an eyewitness case over, two eyewitnesses saw the guy, boom, what's there to discuss? Besides, it's a hot night, and I want to go to a baseball game kind of thing. Okay. And then you watch them move to a recognition that that eyewitness, though, didn't have her glasses on. And they never noticed it before. You know, I'm just saying is that they're starting to look at new information that was there they hadn't put in the integration of the position that they hold. So the reason I use that, and I use it in the book, but I've been teaching it forever, is that what you watch is not just the movement of people, which wouldn't tell you much. You start seeing the nature of the discussion and what people are giving as arguments. The recipients of the influence, for example, has changed. And you can tell it's going to better decision-making. They're taking into account more facts. They're integrating it more intelligently. And a lot of that was done by a very artful choreography in that movie, in a believable one, in which the way things unfolded stimulated that kind of thinking. And so many times you see that, and that's why even procedural rules in that film are very important. I mean, it, it's, it's brilliant in a way that once Fonda, the dissenter, knew that he couldn't argue it anymore. It, it was starting to move into a fixed mindset. He then suggested that they have a new part of it. Let, let me preface it by saying he knew already that a couple people were not quite so sure. And what would happen in the discussion, they'd get a little mad at the other because the, they may agree on the bottom line, but they don't agree on the reasons for it. He sensed that there was some unsettling. And what he did is he called for a vote. And he basically said, let's have a vote. And if all 11 of you still believe guilty, I'll abide by that. Game over. Because he knew that the time for persuasion by him had passed or was passing. In doing that, he put the onus on all those other people wavering as to whether or not they'd stand up to the play and vote not guilty because they weren't sure anymore, and he knew that. But he no longer was going to be the sole savior. 
And sure enough, and again, it's, it's, uh, it's a film, but as it unfolded the votes, one voted not guilty. And it was one of the men you could tell already was wavering. Something was, was wrong. He didn't want to convict him based on the way it had been going. And then it opened up again for a lot of reasons I could talk to you about research based on it. But it partly opened up because he had an ally. And a dissenter with an ally breaks that majority very fast. Well, it breaks the union, yeah, the unanimity. So I, th I think you, you talk a lot about private belief versus pu public belief. And, and you say that you know, dissent impacts the private belief initially, right? And I think when we think about collective decision-making and the wisdom of the crowd, we're, we're presuming that people have a way of injecting their private belief into the collective decision-making process. But, you know, when you're making public displays, then no one really even knows what you're, I mean, you could have a situation where everybody believes one thing, but they all say something different because of the, the sequencing or the, the way in which, so you talk about, for instance, JFK and the differences in the decision-making process from Bay of Pigs to the, uh, the missile crisis, right? And it was sort of facilitating a, a conversation where the, the groupthink was um, less likely to kick in, right? And that, that was really a story about kind of leadership and how the leader, in other words, it wasn't really a question about majority versus minority because we, we never even really found out what people were privately thinking because the, the conversation was almost set in stone before it even started, right? Yeah, but what I suggest is still was about majority-minority in a way. It's a question that the leadership emboldened those who were holding back because they had a minority position to be able to safely reveal themselves. And that's where the leadership comes in. What it does is that it, it, it unfolds a reality that is being shut down because of the processes that we're talking about. And, and you know, one of the things, and I say this, and I mean this directly, one of the things I took most pride in when my book came out, it came out in 2018, and I think it was a year later, it was probably 2019, but somehow just pre-pandemic craziness. And the Vice Admiral of the Coast Guard emailed me and asked if I would come down to the Barcadero in San Francisco, and they're, they're right there in Treasure Island, and, and sign uh, books. It, he had decided to give 10 copies of my book to his men, his own immediate team on the day of his own retirement, namely his gift to them. I thought, huh, wow, I mean, that's a compliment. And then I remember driving down to the Embarcadero to meet him at, at, at Starbucks. And I remember thinking, God, this is San Francisco. What if this guy woke up one, this morning and he said, today I'm the vice admiral of the Coast Guard. And he said to me, I don't even know who in I'm, I'm meeting. And so I thought, so I, was a little, so I spent a little bit of time, but, you know, he asked and I said, okay. So I showed up, this, of course, gorgeous 55-year-old with full regalia comes walking toward me. And I know my first question was, why would this book interest you? And, and why would your men even see the relevance of it? Like, why would you choose that? It's like, I couldn't imagine the military would be interested in this whole issue of dissent. He said, it's because they understood it was it's my idea of leadership. I remember that struck me because that's the term he used. I thought of it in terms of groups as we're talking and influence. He recognized the importance of leadership and kind of creating, if you will, a climate, for lack of a better word, a culture in which things like a dissenting view that's authentically held must be valued, must be shared, must be part of the dialogue. And what he saw was kind of a research-based argument for why 
because it changes what you read, how you think about it, what you're willing to do, creativity of solutions. So for him, it, it embodied what he kind of in his guts knew that he wanted to do at a more macro level. But it was precisely what he's talking about. So it can go in many different directions in terms of the applicability. But leadership, I think, is really critical. And I hadn't thought about that element of it quite as much. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about, you use the United Airlines case, right, where everyone was focused on solving one problem when the more important problem was kind of forcing them to the ground. And there's a lot of, lot of situations like that that you could point to where the process is one where conformity and consensus is ultimately leading to failure in, in some way. So whether you're thinking about it from a leadership perspective or whether you're thinking about it from a collective decision-making perspective, how do you put guardrails in place that enable those folks with independent views to speak up? Or I think in the, in the United Airlines case, it wasn't really that people had independent views and, and were afraid to speak up as much as they just naturally gravitated toward thinking about the things that, that others were thinking about. How do you, from a collective decision-making or group composition perspective, make sure that you have this, this diversity of thought? Do you have to, is it about group composition or is it about the processes that are being used by the group once it's already formed? In other words, you, do you need to start with diverse perspectives or, or can you stimulate diverse perspectives through some process? Well, well, I think both. It's wherever it comes, it needs to be expressed. I mean, that's one of the things we've talked about. It's, if it's sitting there in their head and it's not expressed in any mechanism, then can't do its job, shall we say. Okay. But I think, no, but you, you raise an issue. We kind of go back, which I think are some points I know you, you've wanted to cover it anyway, of this notion of diversity. And it's interesting, you properly use the term diversity of views. Generally, when people think of diversity, they think of demographic diversity. So when they think most companies, for example, you think of, well, let's put together a diverse group. Then you think, well, I want to make sure that we've got men as well as women. We want blacks as well as Asians, as well as Caucasians, as well as whatever. We want people tall and short. We want people smart and not so smart. We want empathic and stone cold killers. I mean, who knows you know, what? But the point is there is that they think that they can pick it by category. And it's not really a very good gauge of what the engine for stimulating the kind of the good thinking we're after is all about. I'm, I'm actually always surprised in this literature where, where, especially in human resources folks, when they say we need diversity and they point to all these studies that highlight diversity of thinking. And then they say, therefore, we need diversity of demography. And the studies that they're citing don't mention demography. So it's, I'm always a little perplexed at the presumption that different demographies are implying different ways of thinking. Well, see, they haven't thought as critically as you have about that issue. Because one of the things I do in many classes is I will show them groups that we know are ideologically the same. That's why they were chosen that way. But they come in all the right faces. So if you just look at the demographics, they're very diverse, but that doesn't get you the stimulation that you're after because what you really want is diversity of views. The only way that that diversity of demographic works is if there's some kind of a correlation between the diversity of the demographic and diversity of viewpoint. Namely, is it the case that if I bring in, say, different races, that I'm going to hear a different viewpoint? Not if they're all on the same page and have the same motivations and the same ideology and whatever. And so it, it, it's only a proxy at best. And in fact, there can be a downside 
sometimes in decision-making when you have diverse demographics, because you can get into a whole other phenomenon of kind of a we-they, a representation of the, of the demographic. Is, is that just because it's easy? I mean, it's easier to measure. We like to focus on the things we can measure. Measuring diversity of viewpoint is, is pretty, pretty tough, right? I mean, you have to what, have a lengthy interview process, I mean, to, to tease out someone's decision-making methodologies and, and perspectives and so forth. That's right. I mean, I think if we're honest, is that we're all kind of like lazy thinkers. It's that we're always looking for that kind of like magic bullet. Like, well, get to the point. Tell me, how do I do this? Tell me, you know, if I write the right perfume, will women stand in line for me? That kind of thing. It, it's more like, and, and things aren't that simple. And so if you're going to deal with uh, diversity of demographics, and much of it is legally mandated, and so you're dealing with some complexity there in terms of the interactions that are there, but you really have to think. And even at best, if you had, if you were as smart as they came, you knew all the research and everything else, you'd be a little bit better than if you didn't know that, needless to say. But nothing's going to be perfect. But I think once you realize, though, that that is a proxy for possibly getting the the possibility of, of, of differing viewpoints on the table. When you mention, like in, in, in the book, when I talk about like the difference in the leadership of JFK when he moved from Bay of Pigs to Cuban Missile Crisis, is that part of that too is recognizing just sometimes procedural things. Like if you break up the group in, in some subgroups, after they talk for a bit, you're very likely to have, they're not going to come back with the exact same position, all the subgroups. You're going to have a built-in diverse experience, diverse conclusions coming of it. Now, that's not perfect. Don't get me wrong. I could tell you all things were wrong with trying to do it that way. But what you do is you can build in the possibility that if differences exist, that they will have a chance of being expressed. So there's mechanisms for doing that. And there's a certain kind of a wisdom that comes from realizing that if there are differences, you want it unfolded. So sometimes you'll use mechanisms of encouragement or of modeling are ways of showing that it's safe. I mean, there's a, a million ways to, to do this sort of a thing. But where what you do is you allow it to unfold. But the bottom line is that if the demographics are a proxy for diverse views, and having diverse views still doesn't get you where you want unless those views are expressed. And if expressed, they're allowed to be somewhat maintained and engaged. Now, there's a several steps there to get to the full engine for the stimulation of thought. And you can see it in the group dynamics. So that's why I use the 12 angry men, because you can see it, you can smell it in the dynamics that went. But that's why I went to all the trouble in the book to analyze why did that happen? And there was an art to that. Partly was timing, partly was the, the style of, of argument, partly it was recognizing when you had an ally and a timing, creativity about finding a mechanism to have that unfold. It's not simple stuff. So it isn't, you know, like the perfume that's going to work all the time. But understanding that takes you a long way, mainly if you accept the bottom line premise. And that's that if it exists, having it expressed and engaged with and to recognize its stimulating quality is going to be good for your decision-making and for the group decision-making, whether, whether it is right or wrong. The beauty is even if the dissent is wrong, you profit from it. Where too often we end up saying, well, 
I should listen to dissent because maybe it's right in the off chance. I don't think so, but who knows? But besides, I'm so open-minded that I should do it. That's all kind of nice-sounding rhetoric, tolerance. But that's kind of sometimes coming from somebody who'll say, okay, you've said it. I've listened to you now for three minutes. Shut up now. Okay. And I've still been this great guy or great woman. I think it's when you realize you do profit from it. It's not you that's being you know, open-minded and so special. The fact is, is that there's a bottom line benefit and there's a benefit for the group. There's a benefit for the company. I mean, that's why I go to a lot of trouble because the business readers are persuaded by a bottom line. So when you see a really screwed up merger, it should never have happened. And you realize the reason is, is that they didn't even think of alternatives that were staring them in the face. They didn't want to, they were so sure of themselves. Once you realize that, it's not a waste of time then. And it's, it takes humility because you realize you have to rethink because our tendencies is to short circuit that process. Once we're sure, we think it makes sense, it looks right, everybody's in agreement, why mess with it? It's, it's, it's human nature. It's not like something you judge them at their fault, but it's not the way to come to good decisions. And, and there's a price to pay for coming to bad decisions, which is why... Some of the best appearances I made were to finance people, asset management companies or Sequoia Capital, for example, which are mega good decision makers. They changed their decision making that afternoon after a talk I gave, which I took, again, great pride in. So it's nice to say it was a good, nice talk. But when they change what they're doing, then there's a sense in which they really understood the bottom line and accepted it. And that's, that's the part that's, for me at least, gratifying. Well, what I, what I found interesting about your research is that you were looking at the kind of downstream consequences. I think when most people are studying collective decision-making, it's, they're looking at a specific decision and they're evaluating the efficacy or accuracy of that decision in the moment. And what you're talking about is the kind of spillover effects or the downstream consequences. If you're exposed to dissent, even if that dissent is wrong and listening to it would be suicidal, your exposure to it in subsequent decisions means that you're more open to listening to dissent that might actually be. No, you, you, no, you do it in real time. That's why I use the juries. Juries are in real time. And so when that dissenter, like a Henry Fonda, <laughs> Henry, not Peter, no, that they're thinking the things that they didn't pay attention to before. Like, wait a minute. Now that I think about it, this happened. But if, but if any of those jurors are ever on another jury, right, they're going to they're, they're going to be affected by this experience, right? Well, I, I agree. I would hope so. I would hope so. I mean, my Im immediate interest is the current decision is affected by it. We now accessing, even as a group, more information or one individual starts seeing something, puts it on the table, someone else picks it up and it, it goes in the interaction. But that flow has been stimulated by a kind of a willingness or a desire or a stimulation to start looking at various sides of the issue, considering that this may be wrong, but seriously considering it. So it's very important in terms of real time. We did do some studies which showed a subsequent interaction, although in all honesty, most of the research is interested in what's happening now. But the one we did where there was a, an aftermath had more to do with being exposed to dissent, even though they thought the guy was nuts and clearly was wrong, and he even was wrong, okay? And they were in a completely new setting. That was a study called uh, Modeling Courage. 
in a completely new setting when we knew they were in a typical conformity setting where there would be a mass, and we had control groups, so of course a massive movement to the majority position, they held independent. Namely, what they did is that they didn't buy the, so much the arguments of the first session. What they did was that they saw courage in action. They saw someone willing to stand up, even if he was wrong, and even though they ridiculed him themselves. There was something about that authenticity, that courage, that conviction, even if you're misguided, that somehow got them... I don't think that they just wanted to be a dissenter. I think it made them pay more attention to, I have to have a relationship between what I believe and what I say. He did that. And there was an, if you're asking people questions, you say, do you like him? Nope. If you say, do you admire him? They say, yes. And you know, many academicians don't ask them whether or not they admired him because they didn't see the relevance of that carryover was that. So there is a long-term consequence possibly. But, but most of the research, in all honesty, is aimed at the here and now. Yeah, now, look, but based on what you were saying, it, it would sound like it's in agreement with the standard approach to brainstorming, right? So we teach brainstorming at business schools. We, we try to encourage it, and it falls under the design thinking. And you use terms around design thinking like divergent and convergent thinking. And so the traditional way of dealing, you know, stimulating brainstorming is to refrain from judging ideas, right? To allow thousand flowers to bloom and so forth. And, and I think you're, you're, you're kind of critical of this and, and saying that, that, you know, you need to have that, that exposing people to judgment and criticism fairly early on in the process actually yields better and more innovative ideas. Could you, could you talk about it? Cause it sounds like it's, it sounds, that seems uh, difficult to reconcile. Yeah. I think one, just a correction on a phrasing is that you don't mandate criticism. You permit it. It's a difference. Okay. The typical brainstorming instructions, again, unlike you, most academicians are not historians. Okay. And so they kind of forget that Osborne with giving you the rules for brainstorming, I mean, it's fine to talk about brainstorming as some general talk off the top of your head, but that's not what brainstorming really meant. When Osborne developed that technique and put in very specific rules, now some of those rules are actually rather good, which is like, come up with as many ideas as you can, you know, rather than worry about coming up with just the right idea. You know, I mean, things like that. Like that. But there was also one in there, which is all of your point, which is do not criticize the ideas of others. So these are rules we want you to abide by before you engage in this attempt to kind of think of a lot of ideas. So it's, it's, that's a very specific meaning, brainstorming. And what happens is that in pop culture, people just sort of throw it around anytime that something comes to mind. That's not a brainstorming technique. We actually did do a study, one of the toughest ones we did, because we did it both in, in the United States and in France. And so I designed it, but I had two colleagues in Paris who can, also conducted it in French with a direct French translation. And we used a task of dealing with traffic, which is a problem in Paris and in San Francisco. So it kind of worked cross-culturally. And I wasn't really looking for cultural differences. The bottom line of it is that the, the patterns were the same in both cultures, which gives a lot more credence to a study, frankly, because most people don't redo one study even in the same culture, much less try it across cultures. Nonetheless, we did. And the bottom line of it is, is that all we really varied was one rule of brainstorming. And you can understand why I would think that was a stupid rule, which was 
the rule, do not criticize the idea of other, of other ideas. Because this premise was people will shut down then, they won't speak up. So you can understand all the kind of guesses that you'd make about why you'd want a rule like that. Well, that wasn't, that didn't make sense to me. That meant like going into the consensus, you'll really shut down by, by saying don't criticize. What you want to do is allow it. So it's wrong, so it's wrong. Maybe it'll stimulate something else. And it's because we see that stimulation, it had great, greater opportunity to generate more ideas. And that simple difference of whether or not we put in do not criticize as opposed to encourage them to debate, even criticize the ideas of others, just the permission to do it, made a huge difference. So if you look at the quantity of ideas that they generated and you look at the quality of the ideas, because you can do that by having several people kind of, you know, rate them. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of mythological mechanisms of whether it's quantity or quality. Encouraging judgment and criticism was way better than the traditional notion of do not criticize. And so again, what it was doing was it was kind of dissecting the rules of brainstorming. And I picked the one that I knew was critical because the other ones generally are pretty good, but they're meant to kind of free people from a bias. So if you know that they're going to start with the fear of coming up with a stupid idea, and you say, don't worry about being stupid. Just come up with as many as you can. That sometimes can crack something that could suppress the kind of freewheeling that you want. But you don't know quite how to instruct it. But my sense was, mainly from all the work that we had done, is that that one of do not criticize was not the right rule. And then we dissected that in an experimental study, showed it in two countries, which means they pay more attention to it in a way that then caused some attention, but also it caused attention because it contradicted, if you will, a time-worn set of rules that was started way back in the 50s. But people have short, well, they not only have short memories, it's that they simply don't read past five years ago kind of thing in terms of a lot of the academic research. And they don't realize that to some extent what had happened is that researchers, all the researchers researching this stuff, for what? 50 some odd years, don't question how we've always done it, what everybody else is doing, what the common knowledge is of do not criticize is important. And you see, you started with the premise, most, ah, most people do, and you know what? Most people can be wrong. Yeah. Well, so if, so look, if, if dissent is good, then, then why can't we engineer it? Alfred Sloan famously said, he was at a meeting and, and all of his team agreed on something and he said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to leave and I'll come back when you guys figure out a way to disagree, right? And so why don't we kind of orchestrate dissent? And there's a couple different ways to do it. You, you're very skeptical of the devil's advocate approach. Does that have to do with the, the fact that the devil's advocate doesn't believe what they're saying? Or is it that people are aware of the fact that this person has a, has a role and therefore they know that, that he or she is acting and therefore they discount what that person is saying? Well, both those things. Plus, I think specific to the devil's advocate, because uh, we've, we've done so, a few stu studies on that, actually, experimental studies you know, varying of this and that and the other thing. And I have to remember that I have to tell you about one finding that's important about the consistency. But by and large, what we find is that just knowing that they're playing a devil's advocate, even if you don't know their true position or not, 
is way, way less effective than authentic dissent. Very, very simple things about whether somebody's just expressing it, exact same arguments, same everything, as opposed to saying, well, we'd like you to um, take a position that differs. And they see exactly the same arguments, da-da-da-da-da. So everything is exactly the same. Just that knowledge changes a lot in terms of their thinking process. So, so wait, but is this, but is this like if in, if in a social setting, we know, oh, there's Charlotte again. She's always the contrarian. That's she's happened. Always the, <laughs> she's always the one that's got, got to do things differently, right? I mean, then that kind of allows them to dismiss you, right? So is, is it that, is it, or is it, is it because the person doesn't really believe what they're saying? Because, I mean, I would say that if, if they don't believe it, it means they're just really bad actors. I mean, lawyers are, you tell a lawyer to argue one position and then you, oh, I'm sorry, do the other position. They're like, all right, they're fine. <laughs> they just flip back and forth and, and no one really knows what they believe and, and it doesn't really matter because they're good at, if they're good at their jobs, right? So is it just that bad, you just use bad devil's advocates in your experiments instead of good ones? Well, no. I mean, for one thing, in the experiments, you, you can do it actually uh, electronically in a way that you have everything exactly the same. So there isn't any difference in terms of acting ability or inflection or anything else. So, I mean, you have to do that if you're going to standardize it in terms of an experiment. But, but you, raise, you raise an important point, though. Just the knowledge that a person has been asked to play a devil's advocate is enough to essentially thwart their ability to stimulate the kind of things we want, like to consider the, the downside of a position or to come up with alternative solutions if you're looking at creative problem solving or whatever. And that we find kind of over and over again. And, and the one I, I, what I should tell you though about is because at one point we even let them know what the person really believed. So you'd think that if I knew that you really believed the dis, a dissenting viewpoint, we all believe Y, you believe X. I knew we started out the get-go and you were at X. Okay. And then you're asked to take a position that's different from, from the majority, and then you take that position. Okay, you'd think that's the same thing as authentically just disagreeing from the get-go without the intervening notion of being asked to play devil's advocate. And you know what? People couldn't even believe this, but it took a lot of attention. It makes a huge difference. Just knowing that you were asked to play a devil's advocate diminishes your ability to stimulate this thinking. And why much what you're describing it's partly that when people are role-playing, there's an ambiguity about are they really speaking directly from their heart or are they trying to play a role and do a good job at it, for example, or whatever. But namely, there isn't that notion that there's an immediate connection with what they're saying and what they're believing. That's part of it. So there's an ambiguity about it. And such, it really diminishes what is the engine again, which is an authentic difference of opinion that is expressed freely probably fully knowing that there's a bit of a price to pay because you're all, we're all nervous about that. That's the engine. And when you use a contrivance, you're back into almost like the intellectual arguments could be enough. And that's to underestimate the power of the social interaction, the sense of really engaging with somebody who authentically differs. That's the engine. Yeah. So if you're trying to engineer dissent and basically manipulate the composition of opinions. You got to make sure that, I don't that, want you to that, do that nobody knows that that's what you're doing, right? Because <laughs> as soon as they know that that's what you're doing, then it's like, wait, hold on. I'm, I'm going to dismiss this. No, no, do not engineer it. You permit it. You see, you got to understand is that you, it's not like you want to create dissent if it doesn't exist. 
you know, I mean, you might, for example, give people exposure to things that they can read that engage them and that they learn. I mean, there's a whole world to learn. What you have to do is get them to want to read stuff that isn't directly consistent with what they already believe. And the engine for that is not making it available. You can make it available all you want. They don't read it. I think, well, a lot of this comes, to, comes down to discomfort, right? So people are uncomfortable when they encounter opinions different from their own. And I tell my students, if all your friends agree with you, get new friends, right? If, if all your friends <laughs> like you, get new friends. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a very difficult thing for people to do because it creates discomfort. So I, I found that your, one of your conclusions was that ultimately you want to be able to internalize to some degree this process of dissent so that you default to seeing things through multiple perspectives because you have been sharpened by your, by the requirement that you engage these different opinions and that you, you know, refute them or, or not. And so ultimately the, the end goal is for you as an individual to become kind of a better, better decision maker. But that would require us to engineer the encounters that we have. That would require us to engineer the, the, the literature that we read. We would have to engineer our own experiences to kind of affect the exposure that we have to multiple viewpoints, right? Yeah, I, I probably always wince at the notion of engineering since I, that always feels like control to me, which I'm kind of really not a fan of. But education, to some extent, you know, when you think about it, you're trying to convince somebody of something that you believe or you know is true, okay? And that can be for a greater good. So it's not, certainly not, not to diminish that. But I, I really think that the emphasis is more on liberating it where it exists rather than engineering dissent. But I think in terms of incorporating it, I think it's nice to be able to see the positive benefits of it. So, for example, when I can remember years and years ago when it was even more PC than it is now, but I had a, and I don't generally teach uh, gender-related courses, but I happened to be teaching a course on um, something on gender and influence, kind of uh, nonverbal techniques that women and men use different techniques for persuasion. So it was kind of around that topic. And there was one guy in this cl class with about 20 women, and they were pretty feminist. And I'll tell you, they were going to have a field day kind of making him quiet, you know what I mean, whatever, I, I won't impugn the motives, but it could be very easily where he'd be jumped on. And uh, I found myself protecting him, but mainly, it's not, I mean, ideologically, I agree with, with many things that the women were about to, were saying or about to say, but I really made a point to say, no, I want to hear from him because you clearly see this differently and I want to understand why. What I was doing was I wanted them to model that in part. I wanted them to see respect for a differing viewpoint. I wanted them to see that when he then felt free and he opened up, he had things to say they hadn't thought about. And they started quieting down the kind of the making him a scapegoat and instead kind of engaging him. I remember that. That's been many years ago, but I remember that event and again, I'm not suggesting this is something work, but I think there's a lesson in there in terms of how you want them to begin to realize that they profited from this. And you could tell them all you want. One thing I can tell you is that as academic, we can lecture all we want. Ministers, they can preach all they want. But there's nothing better than having them understand and experience the benefit and the value because you don't have to talk them into it. 
but they also realize, they develop, I hope, a sense of humility. And that's that it isn't because they're so wise and recognize truth where it exists. The human beings, we all are. And we all are narrow-minded and dismissive people who disagree with us and however we cope with things. But if we want to grow, there's nothing better than at least engaging and listening to someone who differs. Because much like you were saying, is that all your friends believe as you do, then get some new friends in a way. Because you're not going to tend not to grow. In fact, what you should worry about is that you'll get even more full of yourself and more certain of everything that you believe. And that's, that's a danger in general. I can say that, and I can tell you, I'd be the first one, somebody really disagrees with me, think, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, none of us are above that, but it's a, it's a cautionary tale that I think is helped by a recognition, not just by a podcast, for example, or our expressing the research on it, which I do believe, and I hope that cuts through. But I think that as people try it and open themselves to it, they start to experience that they are thinking better. And if that's what they really want, uh, rather than, I mean, if you're going to talk to somebody who wants to engage in power games, I can tell them how to do that and get them all to line up. I mean, I know the way to do it. But where my heart is, is where people are independent, critical thinkers, able to assess position that they move to, open to it, but they don't do it for all these other reasons that are mostly born out of fear. And I think leadership and companies can do a lot for, to try to ameliorate that. That's my, my preachy statement. I just preached at night, so. Yeah, well, <laughs> some companies are, are I think, adopt, are integrating this. I know, you know, Amazon has a, one of their defining principles is, you know, disagree, but, but commit, right? So, you know, you need to have a decision, right? The company needs to make decisions, but that shouldn't squelch, you know, disagreement, right? And uh, you want to kind of crowdsource as many ideas as possible before you make that commitment. Sean, it's been great chatting with you. Um, well, thank you. The same here. I mean, you asked me things I didn't expect you to answer. Some I, I expected, but some I didn't expect. So that's that's always a pleasure because then you get me thinking. And I start kind of thinking about things I wouldn't have thought of otherwise, which which makes it a, a real pleasure. No, it's really true. I mean, that's a good interview. Well, Sean, it's, it's been fun. I mean, I think we could probably chat all day and maybe we, we will chat again sometime soon <laughs> all day over lunch. But in the meantime, hey... Everybody in defense of troublemakers, maybe give a couple copies to your team. You don't need to be an admiral to go and, you know, buy a few copies, right? <laughs> so talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.